0: Welcome to Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan, and I'm left of center.
1: And I'm Rich, and I tend to lean a little bit more to the right. But the bottom line is, is together, we try to look for the balance of what it means to be human in today's world.
0: All right. Welcome, everybody, Living in the Matrix. I'm Jonathan. This is my co-host, Rich. Say hello, Rich. Hey, everybody. Great to be here. And my goodness, this is number three this week. So they
1: say three is a charm, David. Let's go.
0: It's going to be a good one. I guarantee you. Today is going to be a fantastic one. So today we have David Congdon, and David has written a uh, book on the four views of Christian universalism, which we love diving into the show because I think this is probably one of the. As I was saying to David earlier, hell is probably one of the most important subjects to deconstruct, because when you do it. Can radically change the way you look at Christianity and give it a life that you didn't realize was actually there. So, uh, welcome, David. It is a pleasure to have you. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. So, let's dive in. And why don't you give our audience sort of a quick summary of your book encapsulated? Because there's sort of four parts. Help us understand it at a high level.
2: Well, the book is a volume of multi. It's a multi-view volume. So I'm not the only person who has a perspective in this book. There are three others who are also in the volume. Um, I am sort of the moderator of the conversation, but I'm also a contributor to the four views. I have one of the four in the book, and you know the the goal of the book is just to help people understand that universalism is not a single thing. It's, it's a, it's a, there's a range of views and ideas under the broad umbrella of Christian universalism. So the book in that sense is helping, is trying to help people to complicate the conversation, to diversify how we talk about this, this issue, not to assume that if you have, you know, one knockdown argument against one position, that that somehow eradicates the whole conversation, you know, that universalism is now out. So um, the four views in the book, uh, briefly, just to, I'll just name them. The one is on a early Christian or patristic universalism. So this is a universalism that you might find in early an church. earlier, early church mm-hmm. period. Another one is an evangelical universalism, one that was more congenial to contemporary American evangelicals. Uh, another one is what we call a post bardian universalism so for those who don't know who carl Bard is he's a prominent swiss theologian in the 20th century his view is important for that that chapter and then there's my own view which i'm broadly calling existential universalism it's certainly the most out there in terms of the the conversation but it's trying to show you can there's all types <laughs> can be included in this conversation. Yeah.
0: So just so I know, as we talk about that, do you buy in hook, line, and sinker on your view, or is it sort of what you're wrestling with?
2: Um, I, I mean, I'm hook, line, and sinker in the sense of if if we're going to have some ca- account of Christian theology, it had better be universalist. Um, <laughs> but I think I'm open <laughs> to articulating that in a variety of ways. I so don't you're think presenting this- as in an argument. It is an argument. Right. And I don't, I don't, um, it, you know, I think the spirit of the book is to say, you don't have to accept my, my, my position to make, to, for me to view you as like in the right. It's just an idea uh, I'm proposing to maybe help, to help people think about things a little more carefully and critically. Yeah. The the reason why I ask, yeah, the
0: quick, 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 the reason why I ask is I want to make sure I understand the position that you're holding right now, because I hold my understanding of my faith very lightly. I can Thank let go you. any part if I get introduced to new evidence that is all, I just have one rule. It has to be consistent with love. That's it. Yeah. And what I find is it, that always places me in a wrestling and I want to know how hard you hold on to it. Cause I love this conversation. Yeah. Cause yeah. I want to, I want to be totally open to new ideas here. So, yeah, I
2: mean, I'm very open to new ideas. I don't hold my own position as being, you know, it has to be right. My own views have changed radically over the years, right. you know, and I'm, it's an ongoing awesome. process. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah. Rich, you had a question?
1: Yeah. The thing I was going to mention is, well, even David Artman in his book, um, Grave Saves All, I mean, even has um, an example of the early church fathers as a summary of ways, right? Here's scripture, there's tradition, there's the early church fathers, there's almost like God is a loving father, right? And so we've got this almost um, character um, defense that even C.S. Lewis would say, listen, if there's a passage in the Bible that differs with the character of God, I go with the character of God, et cetera, right? Um, the other thing I, I wanted to, I'm, I'm really excited about is, you know, well, I, I want you to be that our audience primarily isn't really deeply theological. So in your interview with your uh, podcast um, host, you talked about pro- there's not a process theology version of um uh, of of universalism, if you would. And we, n- none of our folks know what the dipolar kind of aspects of God are, nor um, would they know what DBH means by default, right? If you throw out, you know, um, you know, yeah, uh, I totally that. <laughs> okay, cool. Yeah. So um, um, realize that our audience is open. We've seen a lot of cool things and our stuff has ranged from talking about theology and evangelicalism and universalism to ways to heal yourself through fasting and meditation and, um, you know, ice baths and, and a lot of other kinds of constructs, right? So understand that uh, it's a pretty general audience, but um, I think that the the general, that the the temper of where we're going with this is going to be huge for people just to add another benefit, another thing, right? So um, that's all I wanted to throw out there. Thanks so much. Oh, that's great.
2: Absolutely. You know what,
0: that's a really good point, Rich, is that We don't treat this like a podcast. In other words, where we're trying to communicate information to people, we treat it as a conversation because our Mm -hmm. goal is to find people who are having fascinating conversations and have them with them. And, and I think this, this, this idea has so much rich value. And I love talking about it because I think it's life giving. So, I'll ask this first because you have a unique story that I know. What is your background because you got to a point where you wrote this book which is on the edges. How did you get there because I know you came from a pretty famous school.
2: <laughs> yeah. Um yes, so I I grew up Deep in the heart of American Evangelicalism, um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, I mean I am descended from the founder of Wheaton College, so Wheaton, wow. Wheaton College is deep in my in my my family, in my history. I grew up going to my grandparents' house down the road from where I, from where I grew up. And on my grandparents' wall is a picture of Jonathan Blanchard, the founder of Wheaton College, and, you know, and, and the picture of Wheaton in 1860, you know, the original building. And I'm a sixth generation Wheaton grad. So, you know, my, my, my father is named Jonathan Blanchard Congdon. So it's all, you know, it's deep in there, right? So growing up, I heard about Wheaton all the time. I heard about the the origins of kind of contemporary evangelicalism constantly. My, my whole family is a family of pastors and missionaries, you know, so... Um, and my grandfather was a professor of bible and theology for 30 years. So, it's uh, it's it's the world in which I was raised. It's the air that I was breathing from mm. from childhood. Um you know, and so I naturally of course I went to Wheaton <laughs> and uh, you know I went there as a outspoken fundamentalist. I called myself a fundamentalist to my my roommate and my friends there. Who were your influences at that point? Who were your influences
0: at that when you were right going into Wheaton?
2: I mean, to be honest, it was just my my own family. If I'm fine, nice. you nice. know, I I didn't I I wasn't trained theologically uh, as a child. My my parents were not, you know, intellectual uh, types who were going to be, you know, uh, feeding me theology and philosophy from a young age. Nice. Um, uh, you so my childhood. I had a normal childhood yeah <laughs> I was of, yeah I came to college to study English literature uh I wanted to, you know I was an English major I wanted to study poetry I was a poet that's what I wanted to do um it but there's no I'm, money in poetry though <laughs> there's no money in poetry no there is not uh <laughs> So I didn't care about the the nuances of biblical interpretation, theological history, all that stuff was completely right. irrelevant to me. Um, I actually didn't even know when I went to college, when I went to Wheaton, that Christians could be baptized as an infant. I didn't realize that was a thing that Christians mm, did. Right. You know, To right. me, that was like something that, you know, those pagan Catholics did, you know, <laughs> right? Like it was completely outside of my realm of experience. Um so I was utterly ignorant of theological history, church history. knew none of it, um, but I did know that whatever my family believed was right.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, I knew that, That's and what I most knew <laughs> right, and I knew that they were, you know, premillennial dispensationalists. That's those are big money words in evangelicalism. I didn't know the nuances of those words. I didn't know the details of those theories, but I knew that it was right because my grandfather believed it. My father believed it. My parents believed, it, you know, that, that was the position. So I had to be right. And I, I remember very vividly um, the summer between my freshman and sophomore years in college, I, I picked up a copy of Mark Knoll's book, The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind. If you don't mm. know that book, it was a, it was a very important landmark book in the nineties that came out. And um, Knoll's book, when I read it the first time through uh, that summer, I quite literally threw it across the room. You know, I, sm- I smashed it against the wall uh, of the of the, you know, my parents' house. And um was just furious that this person who I respected because he was a professor at Wheaton College was saying such obviously heretical things. Um and I picked the book up again about a month later towards the end of summer, read it again and kind of had a conversion experience, you know, realized that um, it, maybe he's right. Maybe evangelicals don't have the, the, tot- the, the totality of truth in their grasp. Maybe they aren't the only right theology or position to hold. And I went into my second year of Whedon College um, with a readiness to relearn everything from the ground up. Um, so I just said, I'll set aside everything that I've been taught and I'll just learn it afresh. And what did you, yeah. did you talk what to I, your
0: family about yeah. that? Uh, <laughs> like, you, that's kind of a, Hey, I'm it's kind a of deal. Old a little bit. Yeah, that's a big deal. Yeah. Did you
2: talk to your family or did you keep it private? Uh, I did talk to my family. You know, I, I, I had already, you know, my my first semester at Wheaton College, I had a philosophy professor who really changed my life, and he had me read Augustine's Confessions for the first time. Mm -hmm. I never encountered Augustine. I had no idea who he was, you know, and I read Confessions, and it blew my mind, you know, absolutely rocked my world, Um, and I I remember calling home to my parents and saying, hey, Dad, Mom, I I read Augustine's Confessions, you know, and it was incredible, and my dad I remember my dad telling me on the phone. He's like, "You liked your philosophy class? I, I hate it." <laughs> you know, he's like, "Okay, you know, if you like that stuff, go ahead, read it." You know, um, he didn't care. You know, my parents didn't care. They just they would encourage me to read whatever I found interesting. Um, they had no they they couldn't comprehend why I found that interesting, <laughs> but they knew that if I was interested in it, it was okay because they were very supportive parents. They were always wanting me to to pursue whatever i was interested in at the moment and um so they didn't care about whether or not i was towing the the theological line of the family that wasn't their concern you felt the freedom to explore absolutely i felt that's freedom awesome yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's awesome quick
1: question yeah quick question regarding the 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 confessions because it blew my mind um because a lot of people love C.S. Lewis, than they don't in the evangelical framework, right? Um, theistic evolution. A lot of people love Augustine um, in some regards, but I'm reading this passage that says um, Augustine's on his deathbed. His mother um, says don't baptize him because if he goes back to his lecherous ways after he gets baptized, what good is that going to do, right? So pure baptism for remission of sins, including him praying for his dead mother so that Satan wouldn't give guile him. And take him off to to his. And I'm like, whoa, we've got, um, you know, purgatory (laughs) or um, salvation after, you know, or some kind of things happening here. Uh What um, were there something like that? Were those kinds of things um, kind of tickling your fancy? And maybe was there anything else about Mark Knowles book that kind of started saying it looks like there's reasonable people, especially Augustine, who are saying things that, wait a minute, I've got to take a pause here.
2: Well, the, the combination for me was the fact that Noel's book was showing how, and he goes through different areas of evangelical thought, like creationism is a big part of the book, which was the part that really rocked my, me. That grew up as a mm-hmm. young earth creationist. Um, but uh, but what showing is showing that each of these areas in, in evangelical thought are only maybe 50, 60, 70 years old, you know, that they're you know, at most maybe a hundred years old, you know? So we're talking about a tiny sliver of Christian history in which these ideas had had sprung up. And, and so for me, um, the hard thing for me to grasp was that everything I had believed from, from, from childhood was resting on a foundation of, of just mere decades of time and had, you know, the, the, it was the shakiest of foundations upon which to base myself intellectually. Right. And so that combined with reading an ancient Christian theologian like Augustine who I found deeply fascinating and, and thoughtful and profound and a, just a beautiful writer. Um, the combination of those two things was earth shattering to me because mm. here on the one hand was how shallow and and superficial my, found, my thought process was, or what I believed was. And here's a, an ancient theologian who was deep and profound and really wrestling with things that were at a whole nother level than from what I was what I had been thinking about or believing. Um, and so the combination of that was what really, you know, had forced me to open my mind to what else was out there. So I've never read confessions. I should. Uh, it's a great I, book. I want to. Yeah. <laughs> you're making it sound amazing.
0: What is the you have thing to. that stood out to you? Cause you guys have both read it. What stood out to you about it?
1: Honesty. I mean, <laughs> just absolute um um almost like like just coming down to i mean i think he was in tears he was wrestling with something and um there's a there's a scene where um he he somehow has a sign to open the book of Romans, I think, but I mean, there's a mm-hmm. lot of different things in there, but if you actually look at it, you're looking into his heart of what's going on and what's breaking him and what's, what's getting him, what's, what's questioning about things in, in real life kinds of scenarios. It is a, it's a confession. And and the reason why people love it is because I think when he wrote it, it is not written it's it's with intentionality. You know how we talk about these things as you as you manifest, as you as you as you intentionally create love into the the, mm-hmm. the the work you do, or the food you make for your family, or the music you play. In this particular book, the things that he wrote were so real, so um, you know, almost tearful, almost you know, the humanity of him just comes through, shining in my mind. That's what was so powerful and brilliant too, at the same time. Um, go ahead,
2: David. I mean, I, yeah, I agree with that. I mean, I think for me, um, I I wasn't I was just basically blown out, blown away by reading a work of theology for the first time. I mean, that mm. was for me; it was <clears> my <throat> first experience reading a real work of of theological depth, right? And so, having um, not encountered anything like that, <laughs> um, I'm encountering this this thoughtful doctrinal reflection in a very personal. Uh, you know, mm, personal. Mo- a personal, a pious mode. Like it's very, it's 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 almost a, it's an act of worship in many ways. The book is very, he's he's constantly praying to God in between his reflections. Um, but but those reflections are deeply thoughtful. You know, issues of creation, issues of time and eternity. You know, issues of, of sin and, and salvation. You know, these, he's wrestling with these basic questions of theology, and I had never encountered, and never read anything. Wrestling with those kinds of doctrines before, and and so for me it was just realizing, oh, like people have put serious thought into these ideas, you know. This, the question of time and eternity, for instance, you know, it. it I had never, I never read anything that was wrestling with that question before and i never thought about oh maybe my like superficial idea about eternity is not there's <laughs> there I, I could spend a lifetime unpacking just one chapter of that book and 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 just coming to grips with that was a humbling experience so what happened after that in terms of your growth yeah. where did that lead you well i mean it, it, Pretty quickly, as you can imagine, it, it led me to unravel some of my beliefs, <laughs> and I, I went on a process of. Uh, what was the ex- first to go? <laughs> um, probably my young Earth creationism. That's a pretty easy one to let go of, but that was the first thing that went. Yes, out. sir. And that was that was tough though because my dad was a very strong believer at that time. You know, I used to go to young Earth creation meetings in my in in the, in my hometown growing up as a kid, you know, so it was, it was deep, right? That was, that was deep in the water for me. Um, but, uh, but that went, that went pretty quickly because of Noel's book. Um, I, I, you know, I started dipping my toes into theology at that point. So I started taking classes, took a systematic theology class at Wheaton college, uh, the next year. Um, and that was, opening my eyes to a whole whole realm of work that I had never encountered before, including Karl Bart. Uh, we read Bart in that class and some other people. Um, but uh, I was also struck by these poets that I was reading. So I was still an English major <laughs> and I was still reading a lot of poetry and I was taking a lot of courses from a uh, professor, Roger Lundeen, uh, who, who had uh, passed away uh, a while back, but he, uh, he was my mentor um, and he uh, was a, a beloved mentor of mine. I just really changed my life. Um, but he, what he did was he did theology in some ways through literature, you know, mm-hmm. and and, and wow. exploring theological themes in, and through the books he was reading. And, um, so I I wrote some papers uh, under his guidance and some other people's guidance. I did a pu- uh, I did a paper on T.S. Eliot and theology and prophecy that was that really was important for me. I did a, a a piece on Czesław Miłosz, the Polish poet, looking at him and eschatology and Gnosticism. Um, and so like these all i I'm, I'm you know, at that point I was just dabbling into ideas. I had no idea what it was <laughs> you know I was out of my depth. Right? It was completely I I, I wasn't prepared to really deal with those topics but I was excited by them. You know, I was thrilled yeah. to be reading these theological ideas. And so Professor Lundeen recommended that I go to study at Princeton Seminary to, to do my MDiv there. His goal for me was I would do the MDiv, learn theolo- theology, then do a PhD in literature and 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 basically do what he was doing but in, in my own way, um kind of combining you know literature and theology. And I still there's a part of me that still wishes I had done that. Um, mm-hmm. But when I was at Princeton, I sort of I, I fell in love with that topic and I realized that was really speaking to me in a way that literature wasn't at that time. And so I, I really want, wanted to quick you know- question.
1: D- didn't Andrew Ronich go to Princeton? Do you know Andrew Ronich? I
2: think he did.
1: I don't know. Do you know that name? Yeah. He's, he's written a book on universalism. It's a massive, massive book. Yeah. And David Artman recommended him um, on our podcast after we chatted with David. So you're familiar with obviously David Artman.
2: Um, yes. Yes.
0: Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Sorry about that interjection.
1: Uh, but no, I was that's... thinking the same. I was
2: in the same universe <laughs> there.
0: David, did you want to be a writer or a teacher or an editor? What'd you want to do with that?
2: Um, I mean, so from the age of 11, I knew I wanted to get my PhD and be a professor of some kind. Oh, that, was, nice. <laughs> that, that was my life goal from the age of 11. I, did that you was see like, yourself in um, I mean, I think growing up, you probably do. I did, you know, just cause that was a, my, my family school, but you know, by, by the time I left Wheaton, I, I no longer, I, I no longer felt at home there. Um, you yeah, know, that's I the question I was going to ask
0: you, yeah. did this feel like curiosity or a deconstruction?
2: Oh, deconstruction for sure. Really? Ab- yeah. Absolutely. Oh yes. Now, yeah. Being I, in
0: your family lineage, how did you feel suddenly being that far away from where your family believed?
2: <laughs> well, I mean, I, <laughs> I'm also that's a, where the journey leads you in the yeah, middle of yeah. nowhere. You know, I'm so I, 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 in this room. <laughs> I have a combative personality at times when it comes to intellectual ideas. I mean, especially at that time I did. Um, and I remember writing a letter to all of my aunt and uncles. Are you uh, kidding? A, Announce, oh, wow. announcing, kind of my distancing from them, um, and that was a big deal. I mean, well, because my 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 father was one of twelve. Uh, there was you know, so it's a big family, you know, and and so I wrote this letter to all of them saying, you know, I'm not on board, <laughs> basically. Yeah. And uh, what was the response? <laughs> um, a couple of them were like, "Yo, great, do your thing." Other people were like, "I'm very sad to hear that." You know, uh, yeah. you know. It's kind of typical thing, but you know, it was, <laughs> it, that was, that was okay. I mean, I think at that time, you know, at that time it was still early stages, you know? So it was like, oh, you know, he's just, you know, differing a little bit. Um, I remember when I was uh graduating from Wheaton college, my first cousin was also there. He, he, and I were same year at Wheaton. Um, he's Doug and I'm David. So we were next to each other in line in the graduation <laughs> line. Uh, And I remember, you know, uh, talking with my, uh, you know, we were talking with our our grandparent, our grandparents afterwards. And um, I, at that point, had already gotten uh, my letter to go to Princeton Seminary. My cousin was going to go to Dallas Seminary, Dallas Electrical Seminary two polar opposite schools
1: biggest differences um, yeah
2: yeah uh, my grandfather went to went to dallas many of my uncles went to dallas dallas is sort of a family school for us in a in a, in a different sense and so i remember um, my grandmother coming up to me after you know at some point after my after graduation and saying you know there's still time to go to dallas
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> there's still time to like to, to redeem yourself, uh, and my cousin Doug, when we were standing in line in graduation, he's like, you know, Princeton needs some Christians. So it's a good thing you're going there, you know. <laughs> and so there was a sense like, you know, like he, if he, you're going into the dark side, you're going to the uh, you're going to them, you know, to 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 the to the world of the pagans and the the liberals and the heathens and and um, uh, but yeah, but you know. You know, it, it, at, th- at that point, it was sort of like, oh, maybe we're losing David. <laughs> you know, maybe David's lost to us. Um, and uh, at that point, I was I was fine with that. I I knew that I needed to, you know, venture out into a new world of, of thought. Uh, I couldn't stay, you know, wrapped up in just what I'd always always heard and what I'd always believed. Um, and I was ready to do just to blow open the doors and just, you know, chart my own path away from my family, which is fine. But it, what did deconstruction was, yeah.
0: feel like for you? For
2: me, liberation, you know, for me, it mm-hmm. was, uh, um, uh, I mean, I, I was always intellectually curious. And so for me, the, the deconstruction was a chance to explore. It was like, it was playtime you know, it was ready for what me. was, it was playground? Ready. Like, did you go all the way and say anything in the
0: world or was it sort of still within the frame of Christianity? Cause I never lost any disconnect to Jesus ever. Um, I, that's very- I learned yeah. so much from Buddhism and Hinduism and, and yeah. Zoroastrian, all of them I've learned from. What was at, your frame?
2: At that time I was still operating within the realm of Christianity. Certainly. No. Um, no. and, uh, and, and I think even at that stage, still a fairly narrow conversation it it hadn't blown that far open yet, but I was open to it. I was ready for it. You know, I was, I was prepared to go wherever it led me. Um, But, but I do so, but here's the, but the thing is like, I was one of the first things I was ready to to go over on, to change my mind on was on universalism Uh, because Mm -hmm. I, so when I started at Princeton seminary uh, in 2005 um, that fall, um, I, I began a blog or that year I began a blog, um, called the fire and the rose, which I did for a number of years. And one of the first things I did my first semester at Princeton seminary was start a blog series called why I am, why I am a universalist. And, and how long ago was it? so this is 2005 and 2006. So it was, it was, it was okay. a long blog series, you know, what kind of went yeah. on and on. It was like, it was essentially a systematic theology that I was writing, um in the form of a of a conversation about universalism um but in the mode of me kind of announcing to the world i'm a universalist all right and so kind of the next step the next stage of my theological journey was just me saying here's where i am the- theologically i'm definitely no longer <laughs> with with my evangelical family in where i was and um was that, that hard to- for you to
0: kind of make that I was just gem- going to
2: say this because you talked about this new playground David
1: people go through deconstruction and get devastated suicidal depressed there's um we had a guest on who was a mormon um mm. who went theist and then full blown um nihilistic um and now she's kind of trying to settle on a positive side of atheism where she's offering spiritual advice a lot of people uh you can hear post christian I mean, you're talking about a playground and and and, and casting aside the, the weights that have left you be, being free as a, as almost oh my god, let's go, baby, as opposed yep. to, oh mama, help me, I'm 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 despondent, uh, need of therapy, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Help us understand that transition.
2: <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I never. From
0: the Wheaton family, brother. Come <laughs>
2: yeah. on. Uh yes, it's true. I I I, I think I'm lucky. I I'm lucky because I won grew up with a very healthy family life with parents who were very supportive of me. I, I, I didn't have any of the toxic baggage with, of feeling like I was, you know, a worthless person if I did, you know, or, you know, being made to feel like I was a terrible person that needed religion, needed this specific form of Christianity in order to be loved by God. Did I never had any of that? Right. That was never part of my world. You know nice. so even though i I called myself a fundamentalist, I didn't have the the stereotypical fundamentalist experience with religion and with christianity um for me uh it was always an intellectual experience intellect an intellectual uh, journey of curiosity when I was Eight or nine years old, I used to take copious sermon notes on my on my church flyer bulletin, because I wanted to, and I, then I would talk to the pastor afterwards and like grill him on on his yeah. sermon uh, to understand, you know, what, what exactly did you mean by this passage here? Are you sure that's the right interpretation of that verse? You know, I would I was doing that from an early age, and so. Um, it was. Uh, it got to one point where my parents actually forced me to go to the children's school, the children's church, so that I wouldn't, uh, you know, pester the pastor with <laughs> questions and write t- and ask them too many questions afterwards about the sermon. Um, <laughs> but it was. Uh, that was just my personality. So for me, um, theology and doctrine wasn't something about my worth as a person. My my worth wasn't at huge. Stake, you know, nice. rather you have an amazing <laughs> amount of freedom. It's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Total, total freedom uh, with supportive parents. Uh, and, and so for me, deconstruction was like, oh, I, I guess I'm just going to discover new things in the world. Yay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is great. Mm-hmm. You know, awesome. <laughs> there, was, there was none of the, the psychological damage uh, that I had to work through.
1: Are you familiar with R.C. Sproul?
2: Oh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so yes.
1: I don't know if you knew there was a huge debate. I mean, R.C. Sproul and John Piper were good friends, but the sad tr- truth of the matter is, is as a Paedo Baptist, he wouldn't have ever been allowed to take communion at Bethlehem Baptist. And so there are, there is that side of things. And I, I I get the feeling that your family is the kind of people who would look at that and say, my God, aren't they not brothers in Christ? Um, well, here.
2: Or would they actually put no, the no 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 put no my, my my parents certainly would be yes they would not understand why that was such a big deal that being oh, said though okay. got it the extended family absolutely would got I, it. And, that, and my grandfather and my and my father were would come to near blows over creationism issues. You know, and there was a lot of animosity there among family members, lots of fighting over these issues between my uncles. My uncles, who were pastors or missionaries and were really deeply invested in the theological rightness of their beliefs, they definitely had a lot going on in terms of, you know, fighting with other people about these issues. My grandfather was a very cantankerous, argumentative person and would, you know, when my. When my aunt and uncle, so his daughter and her husband, when they left to join the Roman Catholic church that happened when I was in high school, my grandfather wrote, my grandfather wrote his daughter a letter saying, you're on the road to hell, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, and yeah. that was, that was just what you did. And so I, I never understood that way of thinking uh, or at least that, that w- attitude of holding their doctrines. Um, I remember when I went to Wheaton my, my the aunt and uncle who were, who were Catholic, uh, lived nearby and I would go visit them because I, I, I told them I, 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 support you. And I, I, am, you know, um, I think it's important that we embrace a wide spectrum of beliefs and ideas. And I, even if I am not, I don't subscribe to Catholicism, I respect your beliefs, you know? And so we, we, uh, I still, I'm still friends with them and they're I'm closest with them in my family. Um, and so it's, um, Uh, You know, so yes, I think it's. I was sort of at a unique place within my larger family landscape. I had a really unique experience, and I'm grateful that my parents weren't invested in these issues because it might have changed my my trajectory. No, it's
0: solid. So I want to get to the book because I want to dive in, Uh, and I want to answer one question first. What was the story leading up to writing this book? It's a unique idea. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, so the book sounds like
0: it's your passion.
2: Um, it's in in a way it is. I mean, I've, you know, I've written a lot on this topic now.
0: (laughs) Um, I say that because you said it was the most meaningful.
2: It was. Yeah. Well, um, so the, the, story here is I, I published a book in, uh, 2016, uh, called the God who saves. And that book was my first full length, uh, entry into the question of universalism. um, that book, uh, I you know, I really poured my heart into that book. It, it's definitely more academic than I would like it to be. I I had you know, a lot of people ask me to write a more of a, a layman's per version of it, but um, it is a it, it it's a full scale systematic theology around universalism. Mm-hmm. Um, the book got me fired from my job because uh, I was working for a Christian organization that uh, had a statement of faith and. Um so universalism uh, they viewed as being outside the bounds, and so I lost my job uh, there. And that's why I'm here now uh, in the Kansas City area, uh, where I work at KU now. Um, so you know, the the issue of universalism, while it's also well it's very personal to me, it's personal in a lot of different ways. You know, in one sense, I, I care about the topic because I do think that, you know, it, without universalism of, of some kind, you know uh the God that people that we believe in turn would is indistinguishable from a devil um in my view, so there's something something some version of it I think has to be right um but uh but also it's personal to me just because it's changed my life in both positive and negative ways you know it the God who saves and and my blog series from uh, from a decade earlier um were both really important for me. You know, they were both personal, uh, journeys of intellectual and theological spiritual exploration. Um, they got me a lot of attention. So I got, I did a lot of speaking on this topic and it was, I was really meaningful. Uh, but I also lost my job and had to re- uproot my family. So it was painful as well. Uh, so, so anyway, I, you paid the price, I think that's an important moment. I did. Yeah.
0: You You paid the price for this. It wasn't like it was some easy ride that you could ride on the coattails of your family. You had to earn it.
2: Yeah. Which is why I dedicate this book. uh, The the dedication reads for all those who have for all those who have proclaimed a wider hope, even at the expense of their own livelihood. Mm -hmm. Um, That's awesome. There there are a number of people who have, who have done that. And um, so I put together this book proposal while I was still working at my previous job. Um, and you know, uh, I pitched it to them initially to see if they would publish it. Uh, and you know, they passed on it for, for very obvious reasons. Um, at for that, our
0: audience, what's the title, David?
2: Well, the, the current title is varieties of Christian universalism, uh, exploring four views. I should say that when the book was, when I first pitched the book, it was going to be more of a multi-view book about universalism that would include anti-universalist positions as well. Uh, so it was going to be a full dialogue between the pro and the Counters and rebuttals. And, you know, yep. Yeah. Yep. And, um, and in the, so the book was accepted at, at Baker. Baker agreed to publish it. The, but then I, then I lost my job <laughs> and then a couple of people who had agreed to write for the book no longer wanted to be associated with me <laughs> or didn't, didn't want to be involved in the project for, <laughs> various, for various reasons. And so I lost a couple chapters from the book. And kind of had to re, reconstruct what this book was going to be. Um, I wasn't initially going to have a chapter in the volume. I was just going to be the moderator for the dialogue, mm-hmm. um, and and so I was sort of struggling to know what to do with the book. It, it languished for years because um, I I had the other three chapters in this book were written. I think they were finished in 2017. You know, so did they, the book
0: work in that direction? Did you feel like it worked?
2: It, it, I think it would have worked in its mm-hmm. original version, but mm-hmm. I'm glad we didn't go that route because I think it's better is not being an argument book. You Good. know, I'm glad it's not an argument about who's right, mm-hmm. you know, which I um, I'm glad it's Isn't not it? that it's I can think I can
0: see how the argument can almost get in the way of let's just focus on a really great idea. Yeah. The rebuttals will come later, but here's yeah, right. the idea.
2: <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, so, and, and
1: it's yeah. different than David Bentley Hart. De- David Bentley Hart bringing universalism to well, so, the, so, so, the world. And he's so acerbic and he's so like, like confrontational and in your face and belittling. And I love that word. No, this is not guys. It, the point is universalism, right? I mean, it's going past the, the the trials, the the pain the mistakes and ultimately reconciling. That's the whole point. It's called reconciliation, <laughs> right, David? And I, you know, he gets I, to do I'm, what he gets to do. But true. thank you.
2: Right. Well so that book so so Michael McClyman's The Devil's Redemption came out in 2018 and then David Bentley Hart's book you know um, uh, that came out in 2019 so that happened after my book was already under contract after yeah, most right. of these chapters had already been written and that was actually a big reason why I decided to shift away from that format because you had pro con work already out there arguing about this issue. Um, and, and one of the things that McClyman's book and also Hart's book in another way just made me realize we need to have, we need to be clear that there are different versions of universalism on the table. You know, Hart is, I, I, I love Hart's book, but it's also being Hart, he kind of bulldozes you. And this this is the only way to think, right? This is the only position to have. And I, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the only position to have. I think that in many respects, I quite agree with Hart, um, but there are plenty of other ways to think about this issue, plenty of other theological approaches to this topic that we should also listen to. And so that's the spirit in which I, I try to kind of re refashion this volume and make it work. So um, Robin Perry, who's in the volume, um convinced me to write a chapter as well that would represent the view that I had written about in the God who saves. How'd you feel about that? Um, I, you know, I appreciated it and I think it was a, it was a good exercise for me because my own theology had shifted a bit since the God who saves that was, you know, since then and now it's eight years and my theology has undergone some, some changes. Yeah. So uh, the chapter in here is I think an improvement in some ways on my, on my book. Um, And, uh, it was a good, it was a good experience to, to work through those ideas another time. Um, so I appreciated that from, from Robin. Um, yeah, so that's kind of where, yeah. Let's dive into
1: your existential, um, aspect
0: of it. Shall we, if you want to highlight some of the others? Yeah. And then we'll we'll touch on each one, but give us yours, because yours sounds the most unique.
2: It's the most unique, yeah. And you know, I'm I'm sure if somebody like Hart or somebody would just say, you know, he's not part of the conversation, which is which is fine. <laughs> the floor is yours. Bye, there's but, no uh, rebuttal. Yeah, there's you know, no
0: rebuttal right now.
2: My so uh, just a little bit more about my bio to understand this chapter and my where I'm coming from, because um, in in between my blog series and this book, I I did a whole I did years and years of, of scholarship and publication on an existential theologian named Rob uh, Rudolf Bultmann. So mm-hmm. Rudolf Bultmann is a German theologian, New Testament exegete, yeah. very, you know, very famous back in the fifties and sixties. Um, and, uh, I've, I've devoted years of my life to understanding his work. And I, one of the things that always troubled me about Bultmann and I, is that he's not, he's not a universalist. Um, Mm-hmm. he doesn't think that there's a way to reconcile universalism with the existential claim of the gospel um, for him to be existential means we have to respect the, the the each person's individual existence in the way in which we respond and and follow Christ you know and there are people who are not going to respond not going to follow Christ and and therefore, there's no way to reconcile existentialism or an existential Christianity and universalism. Universalism speaks in these totalities, these grand totalizing visions, right? And that's kind of antithetical to an existential approach to faith. So what I set out to do in both my previous book and then in this chapter more specifically is to set out an attempt to reconcile a universal salvation with a deep understanding and respect for the fact that faith is a personal and individual experience Mm -hmm. and we can't lose sight of that. Um, And the way I, I brought those together was by using Dietrich Bonhoeffer's idea of unconscious Christianity. So Mm-hmm. bonhoeffer the the martyr who was killed in the nazi prison um he uh, one of his you know, lesser known ideas that he develops early in his life but then comes back to in his later prison writings is this idea of an unconscious christianity a christianity uh of what, what of matthew 25 a christianity of that uh, this kind of f- the faith of the child he he often talks about the 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 infant who's baptized as having this kind of this true direct faith in God mm-hmm. that the faith of the adult doesn't quite have. They, when, mm-hmm. when you get to the adult stage, you have this more kind of reflective faith that sort of grasps a hold of, of, of God and, and spirituality and tries to make it something for themselves. Whereas the, the child, the infant, the, the, the one who's not reflective is just purely in the grip of a reality outside of themselves. So, right? so,
0: let me stop you real quick. Cause science has a really good explanation of how that's possible because until you're about nine, you have no prefrontal cortex. A child, like my grandson lives with me right now and I get to watch him. A child literally is just a feeling object. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it gets the experience, but it has no capacity to judge it. Judge. Yep. And exactly. And to come online means you can now parse it and organize it and separate it. But that's the uniqueness of the naivete is you're right. just pure experience. That's pure great. awareness. Yeah.
2: Yep. yeah. No, your I think that's spot on. That's it, really helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Um... So I, I, I took that idea from Bonhoeffer and just ran with it and said, what if, what if we think about faith in this level, this, in this way, um, what does that do to the question of salvation? Um, and, you know, Bonhoeffer has a line. He has this one line in his, one of his prison writings where he says, unconscious Christianity, colon, you know, maybe this is where we can go to for universalism. You know, or apokatastasis mm. is the word he uses, mm-hmm. and uh, and so he just has this throwaway line, and I sort of develop an entire work around that one line in Bonhoeffer, and so what I'm trying to flesh out, and I don't think my approach is the only way to do this. There's other ways I think you could develop this idea. Is to say, what if saving faith is found primarily in this unconscious experience of being taken out of ourselves, moved outside of ourselves, maybe a uh, encountering a reality, a something be outside of our ego that, that draws us out of our of our egocentricity and moves us out towards others. Yeah. You know, now, that's that's a broad kind of uh, generalized description of it. I, I think what 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 I want to say is. In Christianity, Christianity provides a more reflective articulation of this idea of grace, right, of being drawn beyond ourselves towards towards by God, um, and and it can provide an explanation for how that's possible and what that means. But that at some deep fundamental level, uh, that the 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 kind of the original primal version of salvation is this experience of being taken out of ourselves. Like what did the disciples feel? That's kind of right. what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah. and that it's, not that Christianity is the only exclusive means by which that can happen. It's just the way of articulating what is happening for everybody at all times, right? Every, every person is experiencing this reality. this, exp- And, and what I want to say is that what Christianity provides, what Christian theology provides is a way of describing this universal experience that happens throughout, throughout the world. And Christianity is articulating that in terms of a relationship to Christ that, that, you know, we can articulate it in however we want to articulate it, whether it's like the, the work of the spirit, you know, or, you know, uh, you know, we can We can describe it in different doctrinal terms, but the point is it 's a description of a universal experience that happens everywhere and and so what i'm what I'm trying to propose is that that's that's salvation happening right there that is the work of God, the redemptive work of God occurring existentially in each person's life in an unconscious way, which then the church offers a conscious place to art, to articulate that unconscious experience. Okay. So let me explain
0: what I hear you saying. <laughs> and then you tell me if that's it, yeah. is that <coughs> the idea is essentially everyone's a Christian. Everyone is saved, but only a few have the conscious understanding of it and awareness. Is that what you're saying? That's what,
2: that's one way of saying it. I, I, I want, i how would I'm, you say it? You put the no, word. that's, that's, that's totally, that's totally fair. I think I'm, I'm trying to be careful of not describing other people as Christian Unless, oh, yeah. unless they're conscious of right? the saved. saved. Like, what I would like, could say like you can say saved. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. um, I mean I th- I think it's uh it's this is a challenge I've been trying to internalize. I, I because I I think I this is an important issue. I I think within a Christian community, I could describe other people as unconscious Christians, right? That's what Bonhoeffer yeah. does. Fair. But I wouldn't tell them you are an unconscious christian Christian. i I like human
0: being better because i think that's more original and more uh, conscious to god's original understanding of it but i think that's still limiting i think i'm sort of reducing things down to i am because any words i put on are simply limiters they're not sure describers but they're ultimate limiters they are and so how does one in your theology move from unconscious to conscious.
2: Well, I want to be clear that I don't think you, anyone has to move from unconscious to conscious. So I think that's, um, it's not a, an expectation that's, that must occur. There's no
0: hell that they're right. going to experience for not believing. That's an right. Important right. Precisely.
2: Yeah. Right. Um, um, and so, but because I do they're think they're
0: already in
2: they're, Yeah. They're in, in that sense, right. The, the unconscious reality has already affected well, them. Well, can um, you
1: tell me though? <clears throat> so, We've been we've studied a lot of things and, um, we studied um why uh in Johns Hopkins a whole bunch of stage four cancer victims who decided to undergo a psilocybin experiment taking a hero's dose of mushrooms of five grams, um, mm-hmm. came out of that with a feeling of absolute um transcendent. It, it was as essential existence existence their experience transcended everything else they've been told right they felt a loving cosmic presence they didn't convert to christianity but there was something that happened mm-hmm. in their ego death in whatever happened that helped them not only recognize a loving cosmic force but also that they lost their fear of death absolutely Same huge concept, right? Death experience right yeah um and and so but that that took something it took a catalyst right people meditate um we've got the early um mystics you know, yes. uh, Norwich, um, you've got the contemplatives, mm-hmm. all these people have, have, have had some kinds of experience with the living God that, that nobody can take away from them and on their deathbeds or whatever that's there. That became, I, I would still consider that a cosmic kind of thing. How do you actually tell, uh, how do you, um, identify these group of people as having this unconscious christianity without having that revelatory moment that actually helped them get there i don't know you see them you understand what i'm well, trying the, to get at
2: yeah yeah yeah. i see where you're getting at. i think those are all cases of what i would call some sort of consciousness conscious yes. religious conscious conscious transcendence yes. um, i so i think those are all those are all transitional stages where they've gone from the unconscious to the conscious um i i, I think that's that part of what I, I think the church ought to be, and what it what it's largely not, but what it ought to be, is a place that helps people make that transition from the unconscious to the conscious. Uh, it illuminates for people the mm-hmm. you know gives people a language and a vocabulary for the experiences they're already having but don't have the lens to see right the and unconscious the is the th- is
1: is the th- is the splinter in the mind's eye morpheus is telling neo something is driving him mad it's unconscious he doesn't know what it is yeah and that's when he breaks through and has that conscious ep- existential experience of like, holy shit i'm in the real world now so that's it something has been driving him unconsciously yes. um, and it, yes. i think that that's where we have this idea even in romans 2 where you can even say hey boys and girls the poor people who are dying um after getting slaughtered who've never heard the, the voice of the word of God, they're mm-hmm. gonna be okay because God has written on their hearts. This almost yeah. natural kind of conscience, right? And yeah, so yeah, I love yeah. where you're going with this. Okay, yeah, good. I mean, go that's
2: exactly what I'm, I'm, I'm. Yeah, and I think you know this is um, certainly many people have commented about this reality. That even very conservative evangelicals are quite ready to articulate. You know the 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 kind of traces of transcendence that are all all like woven into mm-hmm. e- everywhere. I think the difference <clears throat> between my position and their position is that I'm ready to say that those people are already encountering salvifically the actual God, right? That, that it's not as if those are just moments that you can then use to apologetically get them into a belief in a doctrine and go to church and then, and then they're saved. Right. Tithe. Make sure and, you tithe. And, exactly. <laughs> right. So I, I think that's how th- those, those traces of transcendence typically are used apologetically as arguments to get people I- to, to then go to church, subscribe to their doctrine and then, and then they can have the fullness of it, right? Well, that's what and, Paul
1: in Romans is saying that they're, they're guilty because creation's already expressed his, his goodness, <laughs> right? right? <laughs> that, 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 that is their prerogative is to now go yes. and be better. You, you've been given this, right? You, yeah, you've been yeah, shown yeah. evidence of, of what's going on, right?
0: Yeah. Right. So here's, David, here's the argument question. I, I don't want to push too hard, but I think this is a simple one to go after. What, is, what, is, uh, what does the world do with Hitler in your theology?
2: Mm. Um. I
0: is he in?
2: Well, yes, <laughs> <laughs> he is. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. No. I so mean, so
0: the, the, it, the, it yeah. is
2: fully inclusive. It's fully inclusive. No. 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 No, yeah. no one. No one's out. No. 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 Um, right. But uh, I, you know, I do talk about this a little bit in the end of my chapter in the book because um, I do think that it, one of the it's it's too it's very common, and yeah, of course you've already encountered this because you're asking me this question. But it's very common for people to try to have the slam dunk against universalism by using you know you know moments of real tragedy, real evil in the world, and say, look, you know this is why this can't be true. Um, and I think my 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 problem with that that approach, that whole line of questioning, is just that uh, it assumes that. When um, the bad things in the world um, that that our understanding of God is to be the one who's going to deal with them, that the, that the point of a God, the point of believing in God is to have this cosmic judge to then ultimately basically bless me who is of course in the right and destroy mm-hmm. them who of course are in the wrong. Right. Now it's easy to use somebody like Hitler and say, well, he's a, obviously he's the one in the wrong. Right. But it, it's, uh, I think it's well, simply
0: to- an object lesson to say, is there an exception? Cause it's, right. it, cause if you ha- Hitler's the tip of the spear, you know, you can right. it is. Hitler, or any one of those guys, it's like, this is, is this the exception? Is there an exception? And I think, cause that's the wrestling of the mind. Is universalism really all in? And that's what we wrestled with, David. And that's kind yeah. of what, in your version, in your view, yeah. it is completely all in. Yes. Yeah, it
2: is. They're all in. Um, but I also I think that the problems in the world that are very real, um that uh we need to take responsibility for them. I mean, I think we as humans uh, need well, to that's the adult approach. Yeah, right. Yeah, um, yep. and and not simply punt to God as the one mm-hmm. who's going to uh, assign all the bad stuff over here and and give us the good stuff here. Because you know, and I think that's where we you know most of humanity just hasn't yet matured to a point of understanding that, uh, that God isn't there to. Basically, play referee for um, you know that that's that's a that's a, a misuse, I think, abuse of God. Well, uh, you can make a really good
0: argument that God has been trying to tell us from the beginning of scriptures, all scriptures, grow the fuck up. <laughs> <You> know, it's <laughs> like, come on, that's the point—is to grow yeah. up into love. Like it's not rocket science. It's not bad for you. It's good for your health mentally as well. Hey, like there's grace people like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to punish you. You're going to punish yourself. So stop doing that and grow up into love and realize, Oh, you actually have value. That's the thing is universalism leads to a theology of love because it says, we hey, we're all in this together. There is no heaven and hell. There's just all of us together. Figure it out.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. right.
0: So that's okay, right. Okay. So give us the next point of view. Uh okay. do you feel
2: like you've closed, like you've given a good view? Um, I think that's that's a that's a I think a good summary go of my position. I mean, okay. we can there's certainly more to unpack if we wanted to, but let, let me go on Let's to some of the other, on other ones yeah, so Robin Perry, um I, maybe I should pair Robin Perry with the ancient uh, Christian uh, position. So part of what Marina Ludlow is doing in her chapter on on patristic or early Christian universalism is to to highlight what makes them unique. Uh, the patristic one and the evangelical ones are are similar in a number of respects they they both accept that there is a punishment after death. There is a realm, mm-hmm. a hell, a hell like state, a, a realm of purgation that happens beyond death. Um, the, the, the big difference, I think it well, was a couple differences, but one dip, one big difference between the patristic one and the evangelical one is just the conception of salvation itself. Um, the, the early Christians, had a view of salvation more like uh, a medical healing process. You know, it was also, they used healing metaphors and they used education metaphors. So it was like a, it was a pedagogical hell or a a medical hell hospital hell. So hell was a, a place to maybe purge you of the, of the, the, the bacteria that accumulated on your soul. Throughout the life, antiseptic, right? if you would, Anteceptic, yeah, precisely, yes. Or it could also be described as a classroom where you were being re-educated. You know, like a re-education camp uh, for those who had been so corrupted in their in their minds and practices and habits through their life in the world that they they needed to be completely retaught how to be human, right? Um, how to, how to be in the image of God. And so. very in it, Which I love
0: about that is because it's very uh, restorative. It is. Like I said, Hey, let's not throw you baby out with bathwater. There's a human being here. <laughs> right. That's what I love about it. Yes, I don't no, think it's... for some it's painful enough. Though it seems like it's healing. <laughs> the colossus is what I want
1: to talk about. The pruning—that's yes. what Barkley well, uses. You know,
2: yeah. Well, Mar- uh, Ludlow's chapter does. She, she gets into the painful parts too. I mean, it was okay. certainly for Gregory of Nyssa and Origin and others. Uh, there was no shortage of pain uh, in okay. the afterlife. <laughs> there was, there was definitely. Um, sometimes they almost dwell a lot. They kind of. Uh, they they kind of you know. <laughs> go at length about how painful it's going to be. Um, so they don't, they don't have any shortage of that, but, uh, but they do, it is all oriented toward a final redemption, a final healing and restoration, or in the case of Gregory of Nyssa though, it goes on and on forever. It never ends. It's a, it's so for him, it's not necessarily painful, but it is an ongoing process in which you will never arrive.
1: So, oh, for Nyssa, it was not an ultimate reconciliation. It was well, the, it is, there was an EC, ECT is, of sorts. It,
2: it's hard to describe. So, I mean, it is a re- ultimate reconciliation, but the process of being purged or, or at least conformed to Christ is a never-ending process. It's an eternal journey. So his his word for that is epictasis. Uh, it's this ongoing process that that will never be completed it's an eternal journey um Hmm. we are always going deeper and deeper and deeper into god uh for for gregory of nissa okay um so the other ones were a little had a little more of a a static conclusion or at least a finality to it but nissa is a bit more open-ended um so that's more of the ancient version of universalism there's also other features of that like the redemption of Satan, for instance, those kinds of ideas. Oh, that's right.
0: Yeah, of course.
2: Right. right. You know. The angels, all the, all the fallen the, the, angels. It's a, all it's the, a the, cosmic all vision, r- vision, right? It's yeah. it's the the whole heavenly hosts and the infernal demonic forces, all of it is included, right? It's all part of that. It's not mm-hmm. just human-centric. Um for the evangelical one though, it is more human focused. It's more about us, about people, and it's less about who that argument. Who made the carried them? Per- yeah, Robin, Robin, Perry, Robin Perry. Perry. Yeah, Robin yeah. Perry. Did. Yeah. Now he he's not the originator of this idea. Uh, sure. he's simply he just put it together. he's put it he together. Made... But um and and what's great about his chapter in this volume is that he goes through the the history of evangelical universalism and really unpacks the various people who have espoused some version of this and then, so it's an old view. It goes back hundreds of years. Um But before George
1: uh, MacDonald? did it go back before, before um, that, um, Yes.
2: Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah, back into the 1700s, even yeah, okay, it's really back away, so, very yeah. cool. Um, but I think one of the distinguishing features of it is that there is kind of a, a very clear heaven and hell. Um, and those who go and, and in order to be saved, you do have to have a kind of a personal decision of faith. So it's a very evangelical view about faith as this personal commitment to Christ that's the saving, you know, the saving moment. Um, and the, the difference uh, here is so, so for the, for those who go to hell uh, hell is a place that will, that is designed to lead people to make their decision of faith for Christ. And it's like earth. Yeah, in some way, right? <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. Very fair. <laughs> uh, and uh, at some point everyone will, that's the idea for, right. for Perry's vision. Um so there's less of this kind of purgative, ongoing journey of, of mm-hmm. uh, educa- education and, and healing. It's more of this decision-based focus on salvation.
1: So would you say that it's one of the things that I loved about um, David Artman's um, is he gets the Calvinistic and Arminian on both sides. So grace is for all and the Arminian, and grace saves completely right on the Calvinist side. And he says, there's the, there's both. So would you say that there is still, is that more of like a free will kind of thing? Or do you think that God is still actually the uncaused cause the actual him? He's doing the drawing to them ultimately in, in that regard.
2: Yeah. For the evangelical position, I think it's sort of similar to Artman's. Um, It is trying to reconcile a bit of the Calvinist and a little bit of the Arminian. Um, I mean, I think Robin Perry's evangelical approach probably falls more on the Arminian side on the issue of what is salvation, right? It's not a divine decision of election, right? It's, it's a personal decision of faith. Um, That being said, you know, he is trying to show how elements of both Calvinism and Arminianism can be held together, um, and that there's a way of kind of surpassing that divide. Mm. Yeah. That that's not so much in this chapter, but I think Thomas Talbot in his book is an example of that. If you might know his work, um, uh, and so yeah, I think you shall bow. Right. Yeah. I think he talks. Of, yeah.
1: I think he, um, quotes the one day, every temple for confess your God one day, every, um, knee will bow. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. And
2: exactly. not
1: enforced obedience, but an actual acquiescence, an actual, my Lord, my God exactly. kind of thing, which is, which is a great visual. Right. Of course. Yes. Yep.
2: David,
0: was there a fourth?
2: There's a fourth. So the fourth one is what's called a Bardian or post Bardian universalism. Uh, this is an attempt. I'm interested to... in this
0: one because yeah. I, I love Bart.
2: Bart's great. Uh, I think what you know what's interesting about Bart is that he he's a reformed or or broadly Calvinist you know theologian working in that re- tradition, um, and what he does in the 1930s and 40s is to rethink election, divine election or predestination. Um, he comes to a very strong critique of Calvin on this point and the Calvinist tradition. Um, and, and whereas the Calvinist tradition said that God elects individuals, you know, mm-hmm. I- individuals for salvation, others for condemnation. Yep. Bart says election is first and foremost, and really only about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the one who is the God who elects because he's God, but he's also the one who is elected as human. And so what Bart does is say election is really all about Jesus. And only secondarily, it's all also about all humanity because all humanity is included in the humanity of mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. His humanity is our humanity and therefore his election is our election.
0: Right. In other words, so, it's a one for all. It's a scapegoat. It's the one for all. It's a universal. You need yeah. the universal yeah. scapegoat. Here it is. I don't need to do it anymore. Is that
2: what you're saying? In, in some ways. I mean, that's a right. you know, Rene Girard way of describing it. Yes. Uh, yeah. The scapegoat okay. theory idea. But yes, I mean, for for him. Yes. So he's the, the way that Bart puts it is Christ is the judge judged in our place. So uh, the divine judge is also the one who is judged as human and he's done that for all on behalf of all. Um David
0: so were this, you a yeah. part of any of the emerging church conversation or follow any of that?
2: I yes, I was. I was uh I was actually part of an emerging church when I was at Princeton. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Oh, which one? Well, it, it, at that time it's no longer around, but it was called the Well. Uh yeah, it was I know the Well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was,
0: I was on the board of Emerging Village. That's why I asked because that was sort of the beginning of deconstruction and challenging a lot of these ideas. At least for me, it was when it became kind of bigger news, and the emergent church I think gave people permission to deconstruct. You know, the conversations were these pods of people just saying, "Well, I'm gay, so can I get into heaven?" You know, things like that. Very real conversations about what does it mean to be a human being and how does God fit into that. And I think it would. And that's when the rapper came off for me mm-hmm. and kind of really wrestling with the idea of it. Um, when you said it started around 2005, because mine started around 2008.
2: Yeah. Uh, 2005. That's when I started uh, my, my MDiv program at Princeton Seminary. And that's when I started my blog about universalism. Um, I, I I came to, to Princeton Basically, already ready to say I'm a universalist. I was just kind of on the cusp. I just I just wanted to read a little bit more, and then say, okay, now now I'm ready to go. You know, I just wanted to have a little bit more under my belt before I was ready to tackle it. Um, At that
0: point, did what did you feel like you had the argument made in your head, or you had the belief in your head? Which, because for me, it was <sighs> what I realized is is that I believed it when I thought I had it, and then I realized, oh God, I didn't know anything. And then you I learn think, more, and then you realize that's what David Artman, David Artman, <laughs> put it all together for me. Did you yeah. have that at that time?
2: I, I had the belief. Um, I didn't quite have the argument. And that's mainly because I hadn't read much theology at all mm-hmm. before okay, I got, before, before got totally to Princeton. Fair. So I didn't yeah. – I I wasn't ready to do it. But you know, one of the things that I – when I read David Bentley Hart's book, for instance, he, Hart talks about – in the very beginning of his book, he talks about how um, he never really – he never really uh, was intellectually ever comfortable with the idea of hell, you know, from a child, from his childhood. Right. And I really resonated with that. I, I never, I was never a hard line believer in, in the traditional heaven hell doctrine uh, growing up. I, it was, um, so, so for, for me, you know uh you know becoming a, a, an explicit outspoken universalist was not that much of a step for me the belief was already there i think it had been there for a long time i just didn't have the freedom to say and articulate it you know until until i was sort of really and fully and truly outside the realm of evangelicalism you know i was at princeton seminary where yeah. i could say whatever i wanted now you know what was that did you like the freedom there Oh, I loved the freedom there. It was great. You know, uh, it was, it was very, uh, it was, it was such a liberating experience for me to be surrounded by people who, um, didn't care what my, you know, where my theology, my theology was going because they were already there themselves or were doing some other thing, you know, it was, I, I could really develop myself without feeling constrained or pressured to go a certain way.
1: Well, I like that. And the polemics are kind of out the door. It's actually a, an open co-creation of ideas and mm-hmm. alignment of things. And the stuff that doesn't really make a lot of sense, you just kind of leave it by the side instead of decimate somebody, right? I, I do believe that, God bless David Artman, um, he still likes to do, he asks us these questions. We, we were on his blog and he's like, okay, do you affirm this? Okay, good. Jonathan the Rich, do, do you check, check? Check. And, and it's cool. It was awesome. Yeah, it, it, it was a 20 questions thing. And I think that's going to be helpful. There's going to be people mm-hmm. on the apologist side that are going to need to have, you know, the, what do you call it, uh, the case for Christ kind of guy, Lee Strobel. Yes. You oh, know, yeah. you have those to books
2: have up. Yeah, you're <laughs> going
1: to have to have that kind for certain. And then you're going to have to have this general kind of, hey, let's talk about the character of God and what, what what the plan is and like how we actually come together in this idea, right? And it's like, the, the, and that, that's where I think the most healthy kind of conversations come into play. And then you start to build. And you start di- get differing angles. And here's the early church fathers, and here's this kind of really philosophical, um, strong, you know, foundation for it. And over here, by the way, there's some pretty good scripture for it, too, right? Um, in, in terms of, of of where this is going. So um anyway, yeah, this is this has been
0: awesome. David, when did you realize you could say it with comfort? <clears throat>
2: Well, universalism. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like it really we're wasn't. All
0: going to, we're all going to heaven. We're all going to be in the same place.
2: I, I wasn't comfortable, <laughs> comfortable saying it. I wasn't comfortable saying it until I got to Princeton. Oh, um, nice. okay. Okay. I think I just needed to be um, out of Wheaton and also away from my family context. You know, it was uh, it, I, I, I could be anonymous there for a bit. You know, and I think that really allowed me to uh, speak freely for once. I think that was really what was the the difference for me.
0: And you got your uh, MDiv or your, or your, uh, I
2: did my, I did my MDiv and then I did my PhD there as well. So I stayed on, um, that wasn't the plan initially, but, uh, you know, pretty quickly I learned that that's, this is what I wanted to do with my life and, uh, Bruce McCormick was, was who I went there to study with. Uh, I had uh, heard of him when I was at Wheaton. He came to Wheaton when I was there to do, to speak for the theology conference at Wheaton college. And my professors at Wheaton said, you should go study with him. Uh, okay. So, um, so I made that decision really without investigating it further. I was like, okay, if that's what they said to do, I'll, I'll do it. <laughs> I, I hadn't read any of his works, you know, before I went to, before I went to Princeton, I just knew that uh, he was the person to study with and, you know, I made the right choice. He was a great advisor, great professor, um, really awesome. uh, taught. He, he gave me freedom to develop my theology uh, and, but also to do it in a, in a rigorous way. You know, he, he forced me to be careful and, and, and rigorous in my thought process.
1: Speaking of rigorous in thought process, um, your book—would you say that it's easier to read than David Bentley Hart's stuff and maybe even Karl <laughs> Barth's uh, Epistle to the uh, What is it? He did a commentary on the Romans, didn't he? Um, <laughs> yes, you know, he did. Let, let right. us let our audience know if it's pretty um, uh, approachable and, and kind of winsome, or is it is, is it a little bit heady and. and have a caveat there, to
2: that. So this yeah, so the book is um uh, there are elements of it that are a little bit heady, but overall it's written in a winsome and, and accessible way. Um I've right. tried to make it as uh, you know, it's probably a it's an undergraduate level, you know, um for you know, maybe a maybe a slightly advanced undergraduate level, but not too advanced. Um but certainly that doesn't require you to have a degree in theology to David. Awesome. Let me ask you let me ask you a different way, because the content of the
0: book is really perspectives. Why should someone, Sally living in Cleveland, why <laughs> should she care about this idea? Because you'd spent a long time writing this book. Why do you think
2: it was valuable
0: for someone like her?
2: I mean, I think the, the question of salvation is at the heart of the faith. It's at the heart of, of Christianity. And it's it touches on on, on it touches on things at, at a very deep kind of almost primal level, right? Um because fundamentally what we want to know is is our god a loving god? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. can we can is is the god that we that we worship a god worth worshiping? Mm-hmm. Like that's at the root of everything we do. Like we have to we we want to know that that's true, you know? And I think um so th- this question we, we can't escape it, right? We can't escape this issue of um, is our God a good God right is the god of Christianity a good just and loving God now certainly people are going to dif- dis- disagree on what that means to be just to be loving um and I think that's what and that's okay I think I think disagreement is is fine and healthy um I think the the reason why this book is help- hopefully helpful is to show that there's a, there's a lot of people who I know who are asking like I, I really want to know that my you know that my uh you know Buddhist neighbor is going to be you know with God for eternity or I really want to know that that my that my brother-in-law who left faith and is now atheist is is going to be you know held by God for all for eternity in God's love right like I want to know that you know I want to, I mm. want I, and and they want to know they want to say it they want to believe it but they don't know that they can they don't know how you know and I think this book is offering people a uh, a vision for Christianity that shows you, yes, this is possible. There are Christianity is, is a vast and multiple and, and, and complex and beautiful family of ideas and beliefs. You know, there's not just one Christianity that you, that you either, if you have it or you don't, right. Um, Christianity is a huge family of ideas and we, and there's a, there's a place within it for somebody to say, everyone is saved. Everyone is, is held in God's grace. And, and you don't have to wrestle with this tension of like trying to, trying to square a circle. Um, Mm. these things can be held together. And, and here's, here are a few different ways that it can be.
0: So, uh, final question and Rich, I'll let you ask one more. Um, how did it change your life to, to step into that freedom, and then write a book about it, which is kind of like saying, okay, here's a bullhorn of what I believe, but it's a very powerful message. How did it change your life?
2: Um, well, losing my job was, was a, <laughs> a negative way that changed my life. Um, I mean, on the whole You, you could have fit in that culture for a long, for a long time. Sorry. Uh, you oh, could I, I fit? fit? Uh, <laughs> That's a good question. I don't know if I could have. I, I couldn't. Was, I had to, yeah. I had to step out. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad not to be there and I'm glad to be where I am. I mean, it, yeah. it, it was the right thing for me. Um, it was just a very painful, painful yeah. thing. Yeah. And it was painful. Through. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it's, yeah. It's hard. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's part of, that's part of the growth process. Um, you went um, through
0: the pain and yes. what did you get out of it?
2: Well, um, what I got out of it with a, was a sense of solidarity with those who have also lost their jobs and lost their positions for, for, for their convictions. You know, I, I had known, I mean, Peter ends was somebody who I had known when I was at Princeton. He had lost his job at Westminster seminary Westminster. while I was, yep. while I was at Princeton. Um, and he used to come up to Princeton a lot. and We would talk sometimes. And, um, so when that happened, and then I I've had other friends of mine who were who lost their jobs. My the philosophy professor introduced me to Augustine, who I told you about. He lost his job at Wheaton College for becoming Catholic when he was when I was there as a student. Um, so there have been a number of people in my life who had been forced out of their positions and 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 kind of exiled from the communities in which they were establishing themselves, and um, and that experience losing my job was certainly a life-changing moment for me in terms of, of coming to grips with that and realizing um, what all that involved. Um, but, uh, but I, I, mean, I don't want to dwell on that too much. I mean, I think the, the, the universalism is by and large, a very positive thing for me. It's not all about my, my experience, but it's really more about. Um, no, but I meant, what is, um, it? I think what I'm asking yeah. is you went through the pain
0: of yeah. declaring I am a universalist. What was the value of holding on to that experience, of of holding on to a universal faith that says, yeah. "Hey, we're all of the same cloth here."
2: Um, I think training and empathy. I think uh, training a, a, a vision to see others as as already saved, as already in God's grace. Um, learning not to see the world in terms of an us and them dichotomy as between between you know the rejected and and the and the redeemed. Um, I think that's part of the pernicious legacy of the doctrine of hell has been to cultivate uh, a vision of the world in which there's them and then there's us uh, and and that line of divide is between the good and the evil between the lost and the and the saved you know and 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 that vision of the world, is it can be so toxic it can be so damaging and, and it has tendrils that go out into all kinds of other areas in ethics and polit- politics and all the rest. And what I think universalism has done for me and for, and for others and what it still does is to, to, to cultivate an alternative way of being in the world, mm-hmm. um, to train me into seeing everyone as, as connected to each other, and to God,
1: love it. All right, I got an easy one. Uh, was C.S. Lewis a leaky universalist?
2: <laughs> uh, sure, I think you know. Right. So Lewis was a very important part of my life as well. I should say. I mean i i i worked worked at the C.S. Lewis Archives at Wheaton College my entire time I was there. I was actually awesome. the I was the student editor for the C.S. Lewis Journal that they produced called Seven at the at the Marion Wade Center. Um, I was deeply involved in. I, I went on a on a Lewis, C.S. Lewis trip to Oxford as part of the Wheaton College, uh, as a student there. So I spent a summer in Oxford and went to the kilns and went to. Do you like his theology or or, or uh, writings? I I mean at that point it was more his writings his fiction especially you know nice till' faces yeah. and you know yeah. those, those those works um, but the great divorce was was my favorites. it's a beautiful book and it was a pivotal moment for me Um to, to read that work and really, really ponder it. And it did lead me to read uh, George MacDonald, who I read yep. also.
1: and A I'm, mentor of C.S. Yes. C.S. Lewis. Uh, I loved Jonathan. his work,
2: you know, read fantasies and other, other works. And so um, Lewis was important for me. Absolutely. And I, I, I do think he's much closer to a universalist than the evangelicals want him to be. <laughs>
1: A hundred percent. And when I when when you first said the fire and the rose as your blog, I'm thinking the child and the egg. <laughs> right. um, I'm just thinking, okay, is this the um, inklings? You know, are we talking Tolkien and, and uh, Lewis? It, are you... it,
2: it's a line from T.S. It... Eliot's Four Quartets, actually. Okay, there you go. I just it is. It, it's one. definitely in the same vicinity, though. It's in the same realm for sure. I Love it. Well, that's. I I, I can't
1: wait to um I can't wait to um, dive into the book. I can't wait to hear more and chat more about you. Um, I, I think that we're hearing from. Um, David Artman, that he's really trying to get uh, a, an actual kind of a conference together, um, you know, that's going to get a, a meeting of the minds together. There's nothing like, a, you know, Big Ten Christianity that we would have seen with Brian McLaren days and what do you call it? The wild goose, you know, yeah, so, yeah, sure, wild be, yeah, but maybe a smaller, like a microcosm of of some of those bigger things. But it would be a great thing to get a little bit more visibility and some great speakers and um, some 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 people attending. You know, it seems like it something be could be perfect. on the horizon.
0: You bring a lot of people to it. David, thank you very much for joining us. This has been an absolutely wonderful conversation. Oh, thank you so
2: much for having me. It's wonderful. Thank you.
0: Absolutely. All right, everybody. Thank you for joining us. This is, again, every week is just so much fun. This is going to be an incredible, this is our third this week, and it's been absolutely incredible. Hope you enjoy them. Please comment, review, let us know, send us email and uh, let us know what you'd like us to talk about. Or if you have a guest you'd recommend, please send them. There's so much fun when you do that. Uh, So have an awesome week weekend everybody it's friday here (laughs) and uh much love everybody